So we are, everybody always shifts a little bit when they're singing. I don't know how it happens, but you always get off somewhere. Um, So we are going to uh, continue our kind of studies through various passages of Scripture. And so we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 this evening. So I'm going to hand these out. There are clipboards up here. If somebody needs a clipboard, you're welcome to come get one. Uh, If you want to get one before I can hand you one. Um, And we also have a couple pens up here. So uh, I guess I'll just ask while I'm right here. Who needs a clipboard? Who would like a clipboard? Anybody want a clipboard to use to write on? No? One? Okay. How many more we need? Is that good? I think that's good. Oh. Okay. There you go. There you go. Yes. There you go. Does Evan want one? Oh, he said no. Can you hand one to Miss Andy, please? All right. Does anyone else need a clipboard before we get started? Okay. All right. So we are going to, uh, again, be breaking apart the passage. And so uh, Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 16 is where we're going to be. And so, uh, again, a longer passage than we normally would do. Um, however, uh, for context and for everything we're going to be looking at, we needed, I needed to give you the whole passage. And so as you start reading through this, uh, we're going to encourage you to make notes, make observations, um, highlight things, circle things uh, that stand out to you. Um, if you notice something about the passage and we'll break apart more things, um, make a note of it. Put it on there. Just kind of spend some time doing that. So we're going to take about 10 minutes um, and we'll go ahead and spend some time doing that. And so I don't, TJ must have stepped out, but, um, so we may not have music. So, uh, just pretend that's what the songs in your mind, just, you know, entertain you while you do this. So, um, but we'll go ahead and spend about 10 minutes, uh, just doing this. And so look over the passage, read it over, make some notes, some observations, and we'll be good to go. All right. So go ahead and start on that. And then we'll come back in a little bit and talk through the passage and kind of break it apart together.
with that. Uh, what is a parable? We're going to go super basic. I know we've really gone on and on about this, but what is a parable? <laughs> What's that, Danielle? Okay, yeah, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Why did Jesus teach in parables? Hmm? So a lot, of, a lot of people will say that, that that's kind of what we've always thought. But when you actually look at the Gospels, Jesus kind of had a different approach. It helps us to understand a lot of times. But what, Julie? Yeah. Right. So the story helps us to understand the points as believers. But ultimately, before we come to Christ, if we hear this story, we have to say, we have to admit, I want to know more. I want to really know what that's talking about. Or I don't really care to know. And so when Jesus started teaching in parables, okay, we read, I think he started teaching parables in Matthew 13, 12 or 13. Um, it was actually because the Jews were starting to dismiss him, not wanting to really listen, not wanting to hear the message. And so he started teaching in parables to make them work harder at understanding. Now, what's interesting is what did the disciples do almost every time Jesus taught a parable? What does that mean? We don't understand. What did you mean by this? That's a good thing to see his disciples doing that. Because that shows there's an interest there. They really want to know, what are you really teaching us? What's really going on here? But if we know this is a parable, then when we read this parable, we have to ask ourselves, as Daniel said, what is that one lesson? What is that main lesson we want to understand? Right? Because if, if it's a, a heavenly principle or a spiritual principle with an, wrapped up in an earthly story, what is that heavenly principle? So that's when we read through this whole thing, we have to pause and say, okay, what is the main point, the main idea of this parable? Now, there's one main lesson in the parable, and there may be potentially smaller lessons within a parable. So there's the one main lesson, but from that we may be able to draw out other smaller lessons. But here's the key. We can't miss the main lesson for the smaller lessons, if that makes sense. The main idea is what we're striving after. Beyond that, you might be able to glean some things from a parable here or there, but the point is that main idea or that main point of the parable. So the first thing we have to do is kind of break apart where this parable is found. Now, we don't usually do this because usually the passages we've been going through are self-contained contexts. We can get a context from what's going on in the passage. Um, what's going on? Right before this passage, we have to ask that question. You can jot it down there. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 26. You're going to see the story of the rich young ruler. And then you're also going to see uh, this idea of them asking, how is it that a rich man can enter heaven, more or less? And so you're going to see this conversation starting from that. Also, so that's kind of included in that part of the context, verses 27 through 30 of Matthew 19, Peter asks a very important question. Okay, he's going to ask a very important question. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But we need to understand also what's going on after the text. So in verses 17 through 19 of chapter 20, you're going to read that Jesus foretells his death or talks about his coming death. And then after that, we're also going to read in verses 20 and on about James and John and their mother coming and kind of seeking after a good spot for, their, for her boys, a, a good place of authority for her boys. And so this is kind of the, the context here. And it helps us to understand why did Jesus tell this story? Why is Jesus communicating this one main point and why this way? So none of that's by accident, right? So we have to understand Jesus is doing all of this for a purpose. So the first thing we have to do is look at chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto. So if you want to note there, for the kingdom of heaven, that's the topic. That's the main idea of what he's going to be driving at. Okay, so he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. What else have we heard the kingdom of heaven called? There's the kingdom of heaven, and then there's another term that's kind of interchangeable depending on the gospel you're in. The kingdom of God. Okay, so you have the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Both of those are referring to a spiritual kingdom. Okay, they're not physical, literal kingdoms. They're spiritual kingdoms. Ultimately, we're talking about what becomes the church. 
Those that are in the, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, those are those who will be and are saved. Okay, so this is not a physical kingdom. But the disciples had a problem distinguishing between the physical and the spiritual. They had a hard time figuring out which was which. You guys remember here a couple months ago, we looked at Acts chapter 1. We broke that apart and we talked about the fact that disciples were fixated on Jesus restoring an earthly kingdom, a literal kingdom. So they were so fixated on the physical. And in fact, again, we see that Jesus foretells his death later in the chapter, as we talked about. And then right after that, James and John, their mother comes and speaks to Christ on their behalf, on behalf of her boys, desiring them to receive the best thrones in the kingdom. So again, all physical idea. I, I want my children to have the best spot of authority. Now, I always find that really humorous that James and John's mom show up and ask Jesus, hey, can you give my boys the best seat in the house, basically? Okay? I love that. Uh, because moms are that way. Moms are always going to think the best of their boys. They're always going to want the best for their children. Okay? They're always going to advocate for them, and that's fine. But I love Jesus' response. How did Jesus respond to James and John's mother's request? She was like, hey, you, you, you should give them these seats. And what does he talk about there in that dialogue? Do you remember? That's going to be part of the lesson as well, even in the parable. More or less, he basically tells her, you don't really know what you're asking. Right? They're, they're not really able to do what needs to be done. Verse 22 of chapter 20. But Jesus answered and said, you know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, we are able. So what's Jesus saying there? You're asking for this authority, but you don't understand what I'm going to have to go through. You really don't want this. You really can't do this. But they just were caught up in the moment and they didn't realize the fullness of what they were saying. So again, focus on the physical. Everything's in the physical. I mentioned right before this, encounter with the disciples in this parable. We see the encounter with the rich young ruler. Okay. What was the rich young ruler asked to give up? His riches. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. Okay. We know that it's seemingly from the text. He doesn't do that. Then we fast forward to the discussion with the disciples. And then we get down to verse 27 of Matthew 19. Then answered Peter and said unto him, again, Peter is the one that speaks up the most. We have forsaken all and followed you. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, that you, you which have followed me in uh, the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judge of the twelve tribes of Israel. This is why James and John's mom, James and John somehow communicated this, and she comes asking for the best thrones. Verse 29, And everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit eternal life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now he tells a story. Now he tells the parable. He's actually telling this parable as an answer to Peter's question. What was Peter's question? Summarize it. What was Peter basically asking? Okay, we gave everything up. What do we get out of this deal? Okay, now what's, what's wrong with that question in your mind? Okay, seems very entitled, right? It's a very 2022 question, right? It's very entitled, okay? What else, when you hear that he asked that question and says it right to Jesus' face, what, what comes to your mind? Yeah, don't understand what Jesus is going to do, the level of sin and how depraved we really are. What else comes to your mind when you think about Peter asking this question? We've given up everything, Lord, and we've done it for you, so what do we get out of the deal? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because who's he talking to? The one that's going to literally die on the cross for his sins. And he's going, hey, listen, we've given up everything. They almost sense this tone of like, Jesus, do you understand what we've sacrificed for you? 
the Son of God take on flesh incarnate to die on a cross? Do you get that? And we really should get something out of the deal. And also remember, this is right after a conversation with the rich young ruler who was told to give up all his riches. So I wonder in my mind if Peter's not a little bit like, are we going to have to continually give up all of our stuff? So again, you see this attitude here, and this is the context in which Jesus speaks this parable. And to understand the parable and the lesson in the parable, we have to get the context. We have to understand what happened before and what happened after. Again, it's a bold question. Most likely one that a few of the disciples were thinking, since again, they were desiring physical reward. We know Peter was thinking it. We know James and John were thinking it. They were thinking about physical rewards or physical benefits. So odds are, if those are the three that spoke up, maybe many more were actually thinking this. By the way, I think modern day Christians, we think this. Lord, I gave up. You know, God, I, I did this for you. I did that for you. I sacrificed this. What do I get out of the deal? Why me? Why aren't I being blessed? Why aren't I being provided for? We, we really say the same thing. And it was said so well. It's a very selfish question. Because we forget what has been given to us. And when you understand what you've been given, you'll give up anything for the one who gave it to you. Right? David Platt says it well. When we are told by Christ, follow me, the following makes no sense unless you know who the me is. But when you know who the me is, you'll follow joyfully and sacrificially because you know who you're following. And so again, here, Peter just doesn't understand. Many of the disciples maybe are thinking this, and this is the context in which Jesus tells this parable. So with a parable, we have to ask a couple questions. The first thing we have to ask is the characters or the setting of the parable. The characters in the story or the setting the story takes place. So you can kind of follow along there. Verse 20. And a parable usually starts with a certain man. Uh, a man was doing this or a father was doing this. It's very kind of a generic feel. Usually parables do not have proper names in them. Okay. Proper names are usually not found in a parable. Uh, a proper name, an example of what some have thought to be a parable, but not really sure, would be the rich man and Lazarus. That's one of the most confusing passages when it comes to parables. Because it says a rich man or a certain rich man sounds like a parable. But then you start reading down and you read a name, a name Lazarus. Then you also read about Abraham. But in context and in the flow, it feels like a parable. But it kind of also sounds like this is a real account. So that's one that if you study it out, there's been much debate on that. Is that a parable? Is that not a parable? But usually a parable will not have a proper name in it. It's more of a general, a certain man or a person did this. So we see there the parable actually begins with a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. So the first thing we have to note is the householder. Householder. You have a different translation if you're looking at it, or maybe you just know a different term for this. What's another term for householder? A landowner, right? Somebody who owns property, okay? Who is the landowner? In this story, who, who is the landowner represent, you think? Yeah, God is the landowner. So under householder, you can write God. Is that, that's what that character represents. What's the next character or characters that we come across in the parable? Laborers, okay? Now, like anything else, this is going to have debate to it. So if you study this out, one commentary may go a little bit different, a little bit one way or the other. But I'm just going to tell you kind of the general consensus around this parable. So who are the laborers? Who are the laborers? Okay, believers, Christians, right? For us, it'd be Christians. Yep, so I would put down believers or Christians, any, any term like that that represents us as followers of Christ. Okay? These are those that receive the gospel and are saved, if you want to be specific. Those who are saved individuals. Okay? What's the next thing we come to in the parable we need to kind of define or figure out what we're talking about? Before payment, actually. The vineyard, okay? What's the vineyard represent? So there's the landowner, and he owns the vineyard. So what's the vineyard? What's that? 
No. So there's two ideas here. One is the world in general, because does God own the world? It's his creation, right? He has authority over it. Others would say this is actually referring to the church in the world. Okay, so how, and the reason being is this is the field that believers are sent into to work. So the believers are sent into this field to work. So it could be sent into the church and then through the church they're working into the world or it's just generally the world, okay? But these laborers stand out in the world. So that's where some would have a little bit of a disagreement on what's being talked about here. But basically it's either the church in the world or it's just the world. But the idea is it's the field in which the laborers are working, Okay. Now we know we work in the world. We, we work in his world, right? Under his authority. And we do that through the church. And that's why some would say it's the church in the world or it's the world in general. All right. The next thing we come to, Renee kind of touched on it, would be what? The payment or the wage. Okay. So verse two. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Okay, so there's a wage being given. Now, it's something I should have noted a minute ago. We're going to see different times of the day. Okay, it's not a huge importance, but it is something to note just for the flow of the story. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 20, it says early in the morning. So most likely this was 6 a.m. This is the start of the day. Okay, that's the idea. It's the start of the day. It's the beginning of a day. 6 a.m. Okay. Some of you, your days start a lot earlier than that. I'm sorry, I don't know how, I, I've got empathy for you, but I'm not joining you in that, okay? 6 a.m. is early enough for me, let me just tell you what. Um, and then we're going to see, we'll drop down a little bit here, because I wanted to touch on this before we got too deep. Uh, verse 3, it talks about the third hour. So if 6 a.m. is the beginning of the day, what's the third hour? 9 a.m. So then you can kind of go through there. Uh, sixth hour would be noon. Ninth hour is 3 p.m. The 11th hour would be 5 p.m. And then we get all the way down to verse 8. It says, so when even was come, and that even is evening or 6 p.m. Okay? So we're looking at a 12-hour day, 6 to 6. Okay? That's the idea here. And so, again, the times aren't what's important. The fact that it's occurring at different times, that's the key. Okay? That there's different times being mentioned here through the course of a day. So let's go back up. To verse 2. So at the beginning of the day, it says, And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his, his vineyard. So now we have the question of the wage. Okay, so I'll give you the specific wage that's being referred to in the parable, and then the spiritual wage, if you will. So the specific wage would be a penny a day, or what is a penny a day? If you have a different translation that maybe, okay, a denarius or a denarius, okay, this would be a fair wage. So that's the idea. Story-wise, this is a fair wage. This landowner is being fair. He's paying these day workers a fair wage. Um, some would say this is also the wage that a soldier would receive for a day's work. Okay, so this is a good-paying day job. This is good, okay? And again, that's only important to note the heart of the landowner. This speaks to the character and the grace and the compassion of the landowner to pay someone a good wage. Okay, that's kind of the emphasis we want to draw out of that. Spiritually, and this again is where there's some debate, spiritually this would be eternal life. So the wage that the laborers are receiving is eternal life. Okay? Now, some would disagree with that and say that there's a problem here. It sounds like then I'm working for salvation. But that's not what's being talked about here. Because the salvation doesn't happen at the end of the day. That's just their entrance into the fullness of eternal life. Salvation actually happens at the beginning of their shift. When the landowner calls them and sends them. That transaction, that is when salvation takes place. And so we'll break all that down. Those that began the day of work were told it would be a denarius a day. Or for the day, specifically. However, those that came into the field later in the day were told, whatever is right, you will receive. So if, I don't know if you guys caught that when you're reading through the text. The first group's told, you're going to receive this payment. 
But as the day goes on, and you're going to read here in verse 3, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them in verse 4, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. So when he says, whatever is right, I will give you, and they went their way, what does that show us that these laborers are, are demonstrating? Trust in who? In the landowner. Well, this person is trustworthy. Again, there's a relationship there seemingly, okay? So again, what is the main idea? So you guys read through this, um, and we're going to read a little bit more, and then we'll break it apart. So it says here, I think I stopped in verse 4, so verse 5. Again, he went about the 6th and ninth hour and did likewise. Same exact thing as he did at the uh, verses 3 and 4. Verse 6, and about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man has hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. And this is now then verse 8. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. Okay? So start with those who got hired in at 5 p.m. and end with those who were here at 6 a.m. That's, that's the idea. Now again, we read here, verse 9. And when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, they received every man a penny or a denarius, a day's wage. Now, some would suggest this is more than they expected. And why is it more than they expected? They didn't work a full day. What was that called? One hour, right? What do you think their expectation was when they got hired? Nothing. Their expectation was he's going to give us whatever's fair. So they don't have an expectation of a dollar amount. They're just going into it thinking, well, he's going to give us what's fair, and we don't really know what that's going to be. So if you go in with, like, really no expectation, and you get rewarded a fair's day wage, how would you respond? You worked one hour, you got a good day's wage, and you only worked one hour. Overjoyed, right? Joyful, thankful, right? Grateful. Goes on to verse 10. But when the first came, 6 a.m. group, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. Verse 11, and when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden of the heat of the day. Why do you think they said it like that? What's another way to say that? We have borne the burden of the heat, or borne the burden and heat of the day. What are they trying to get the landowner to understand? Oh, it was so hard out here all day under the sun, right? They're, they're expressing the, the difficulty of the labor. And so it's not really fair that those guys showed up and only were working for an hour and they get the same pay as us. We had to bear the burden of the heat of the day. Verse 13, but he answered one of them and said, friend, I do thee no wrong. Uh, didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that as... Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto the last, or give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. So what is the basic idea or the main idea? So again, there's all kinds of things in here. We're going to get to some of the smaller lessons, right? Most likely, maybe next week, because I'm looking at the time, so we'll see. But we need to understand, okay, what is the main point? What is the main lesson here? So here's the basic teaching of this parable. We are all equal at the cross. The basic idea, we are all equal at the cross. Or you could say, we're all equal in salvation, the basic teaching of this parable speaks to our salvation. Here's how it washes out. No matter when someone is granted eternal life, whether it is at seven and they live for the Lord, serving him 70 years, or if it is the deathbed conversion we hear of moments before passing into heaven, the reward is the same, eternal life. This is why eternal life is not being worked for in this parable. It's the reward for whoever responds 
to the call of the landowner. And so here again, we see the last will be first and the first last. It's mentioned here. It's also mentioned in uh, the example we talked about. Um, well, it, it's referred to, I should say. I'm sorry, I said it speaks to Matthew 20, verse um, 27. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. So this idea of in control and serving one another. It talks about it in Matthew 20, verse 16. Again, we talked about that. And he talks about it again in Matthew 19, verse 30. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So there's a theme here. This idea of first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, there's a couple different ideas about this. Um, and I guess I'll just open it up. Maybe I'll do that. What, what, do you, what, do you, what have you heard, or in your studies, what, do you, what have you come to as an answer to what this is referring to? What does Jesus mean when he says, the last will be first and the first will be last? In your own studies, or in your own reading, how have you interpreted that, that idea in the passage? Mm-hmm. No, 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 I agree 100%. That's the, the parable of the, the supper, right? That when you come in, usually the best seats towards the head of the table are reserved for the most important in the room. And so the idea is that when you come in as an invited guest, don't assume you're going to be sitting at the best seats. Actually start at the worst seats at the table. It's better to be told, hey, you're back here, come to the front, instead of saying, hey, you need to go to the back. Right? And that's an example to the religious leaders who just assumed they were the best. So they'd sit at the head of the table. And Jesus' point was, hey, these individuals over here, they're actually more honored or more favored than you are because they have a relationship with the, with the one who's running the party, right? The one who oversees the banquet. Absolutely. Same, similar idea. Yes, Renee. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that humility, right? Philippians 2 says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That humble attitude that he, ser- he served the disciples, even washing their feet, which also means he washed Judas's feet as well as Peter, James, and John. Right? He humbled himself and ultimately demonstrated that for us. When, I, when I've heard this talked about, one of the things in this specific passage I've heard talked about, and I have thought this, and this could be a very accurate understanding as well, um, that it's speaking to the Jews that have known God or salvation before the Gentiles came to Christ. That in God's kingdom, the first, the Jews that believe, will be last, and the last, Gentiles that believe, will be first. That basically, it's saying, even though the Jews believe first, the Gentiles are also going to be favored. So you're going to go to the back of the line, they're going to come to the front of the line. How does this fit in this context, though? If that is what's being talked about here, that the Jews, even though they started following the Lord first, the Gentiles will be favored ahead of them. It could be because Peter asked a question that started this whole thing. What was the question? What do we get out of it? We are Jews. We've believed. Now we believe in you. What do we get out of it? And some have said that Jesus' point was, Peter, these Gentiles that you're casting away, they're actually going to be ahead of you. Now, again, I don't know specifically that's what it's referring to. But I actually heard a different understanding of this text, a different interpretation, which I like actually better. And it made me think of a race when I was reading this example. And it said in, the, in this book I was reading, it said, okay, in a race, what is the only way that the last are first and the first are last? If you're running a physical race, how is that possible for the last to be first and the first to be last? What's that? No. It's got to Okay? It's got to be a tie, right? The last finished first and the first finished last, that means everyone's just tied. Everyone finished at the same point. That's the idea. Is what this book was drawing out. And I never thought about it that way. But if you think about what the parable is saying, I think that fits better in the context. Because what's the point? The guy that worked 12 hours and the guy that worked one hour finished at the exact same point. Meaning they both received the same reward. There is no better or worse or farther or what. In Christ, we're all equal. 
So when you cross that finish line in Christ, you're a rewarded eternal life. Whether you live for him for 70 years or seven minutes, the point is not what we do for him. The point is what he has done for us. So again, this idea of a race, I think fits a little bit better that basically everyone's tied when we cross into eternal life. There is no clear winner because we are all equal when we finish. Those that labored all day received the same pay as those that worked an hour. How do they respond when they see the same pay being given and they thought I should get more? They get angry. They actually accuse the landowner of not being good. They feel cheated. However, the landowner tells them, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Then he says this, is thine eye evil because I am good? You can jot it down. A great reference to this is Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Paul speaking here. The whole point of Romans 9, really, I mean, it deals a lot with Israel, but the point of Romans 9 is basically this. God says, I will show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. We don't get to tell God who he shouldn't, shouldn't be merciful to. And now we can wash that out, and a lot of theologians have studied that out and really put some different things to that. But here's the basic idea. If God chooses to save someone, that's God's business. But if we're being honest, there's times in our Christian lives we've actually looked at someone and said, they, they can't be saved. There's no way God would save someone like that. I mean, look what they've done. Look how far they've gone. Really what we're saying is they don't deserve it. And we forget we don't deserve it. Again, that's the idea here. When, when the good landowner says in verse, um, where'd it go? Verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? So eternal life originates with who? So he can decide who gets it and who doesn't. He can decide whether or not he's going to grant someone eternal life or not. That's the whole point of this idea. We don't get to tell him that's not fair. Now, I will also point this out. Notice, too, that those individuals that complained don't lose their reward. Was their reward taken from them? Eternal life? Nope. He actually says, take what's yours and go. And I think that's telling me that, again, if I can't do anything to merit my salvation, I can't do anything to lose my salvation. Okay? So, again, we see that here. Verse 11, and when they had received it, they murmured. They received eternal life. Then in verse 12, it says, thou hast made them equal unto us. So I do believe there's a context here for the Jews and the Gentiles. And I believe that the issue that Peter needed to understand was, Peter, these Gentiles are just like you. Now, did Peter learn this lesson in Matthew chapter 20? No, because he had to learn it again in Acts chapter 10. He didn't get it, right? They're just like you. You're not farther along. Ultimately, what was the answer to Peter's question? What do we get, Lord, for giving up everything and following you? What What do we get? Eternal life. That's the answer. Now, he says here at the end of chapter 19, everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands. By the way, we talked about this morning in the persecuted church. Believers all over the world have given up all of those things. Even in the early church, I mean, in the early Roman Empire, they could take your land if you were a Christian for no other reason than you were a believer. We're just going to seize your land. It's just insane to me to think about, but this has been happening for 2,000 years. So Jesus was speaking prophetically here as well as this is what's going to happen. goes on to say this. For my namesake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit eternal life. Some have said, oh, a hundredfold. I'm going to get all my possessions back. I don't believe that's what Jesus is teaching. I think Jesus is saying, you can't imagine what you've given up compared to what you're going to receive. And what you're going to receive is eternal life. And what you're receiving is a hundredfold what you lost. Because this is temporal. This is eternal. I don't think he was saying, I'm going to give you all your possessions back and eternal life. I think he was saying, you've lost all of that, but it's for eternal life. It's for me. It's for my namesake. And I will reward you with an eternal joy and blessing and peace in my presence. Other lessons we learn from this parable. Uh, Six different things that I jotted down here. Again, just through studying and reading some different individuals and some of these things, I thought I love the way that were brought out through a couple different texts. Other lessons we learn here. 
First thing we learn is, and again, these are minor lessons. These are points of disagreement among some, but I believe we see them in the parable. God initiates salvation. In this parable, we see that God initiates salvation. We, or he went to find the workers and we must respond. Do you see that dynamic there? These guys are out in the marketplace just waiting to be hired. Jesus, or God in this case, went to them and said, would you come and work? I'm willing to give you the opportunity to do that. So God initiates salvation, but we must respond. And this is the salvation we see in scripture. Man, so many Christians want to argue about whether we have free will, whether it's God's sovereignty. And the answer is yes and yes. God is sovereign and we have free will. The only reason we have free will is because God gives us free will. Right? The faith we use to ask for him to save us is the faith he gave to every man, a measure of faith so that we might believe. So again, he initiates, we respond. Okay, and we see that dynamic all throughout scripture. Another lesson we learn is that God establishes the terms of salvation. God establishes the terms of salvation. If we follow him, we receive eternal life. It's not performance driven, it's a choice of surrender. Another lesson we learn is God continues to call workers all day long. I think that's one of the coolest parts of this parable. God never stops going out and inviting people to work in the vineyard. He's always working. He's always calling people to surrender. He is ultimately calling all of us to repentance today. I believe God is working throughout all the world, right? What did John say that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin and righteousness. Acts, we read that the Spirit of God is the one that draws us to the repentance we need. So again, God continues to call all day long. So God initiates salvation. God establishes the terms of salvation. God continues to call workers all day long. And that call is a general call. We're all called through the cross, right? John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever... Right? Anyone can do it. It's a general call. Once we receive the call, then we get a specific calling, if you will, which we read about in Romans chapter 8, that specific calling into service. Uh, another lesson we learn, everyone God redeems works for him. Kind of a simple lesson, but everyone God redeems works for him. We see this in the book of James, right? Faith by works. Not faith through works or work our way to faith, but our faith produces works. So everyone that God redeems works for him. We also see God is compassionate to those in need. God is compassionate to those in need. Where do we see that in the parable, that God is compassionate to those in need? Do we see an example of that in the parable? Okay. That's what, okay. The ones who hadn't been hired yet. Actually, and he actually says, why are you still standing out here? And what's their answer? Nobody's hired us. And I love that picture that they're just idle. Now we know that idle hands, right, are the devil's playground. And Satan loves that, that they're idle and able to be pushed and moved. And so they're just idle. They just don't even know. They don't have any opportunities. And God comes and initiates salvation in them. And last lesson we learn here is that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. What was the promise given to the first group that were hired in? Yeah, I will pay you this for a day's wage. He also kept the promise to the second, third, fourth, right? I'll do whatever's fair. So he's willing to, to give them that and he kept his promise. This is an amazing reality for us because what are we waiting on? We're waiting on the fulfillment of the promise. We have breath in our lungs and we're praying and we believe that when we die, we will spend eternity with him, that he's granted us eternal life. Ephesians chapter one talks about the sealing unto the day of redemption. So again, this parable is a great encouragement to us and also a challenge to us. No matter when we were saved or how much we have done for the Lord, the agreed amount is set and will be fulfilled. He has promised eternal life to those that believe and he will deliver that amount. We work for him in his field, but our work is not merit for salvation. It is in reaction to him calling us to his grace. We work in the field. And by the way, what kind of work is it? 
Sounds like some hard work, don't it? Do you hear, even in the parable, the group that says, well, we've worked under the heat of the day, right? We've been out here with this burden. What did Peter say? We've given up everything for you. What do we get? He's basically saying, we're under a burden. Do you, I think Peter, the representation of Peter is the one that said, hey, we've been out here all day. What do we get? We should get more. So maybe even Jesus was trying to remind Peter, be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. And so again, we see that coming through. It's going to be hard work. It is hard work. We talked about it this morning, but it's worth it. Because at the end, we receive eternal life, not through what we've done, but what he's done for us. Any other comments, questions, or thoughts before we dismiss in a word of prayer? Comments, questions, or thoughts? It's an amazing parable. I love this example that we read about here. And I think the thing I love the most is that no matter who we are or when we were saved or what we've done for him, we will receive eternal life, period. And I love that. What an encouragement because so many people think, well, I've only been saved for this long. What can I possibly do for the Lord? There's no such thing as wasted time with the Lord. I know Pastor Greg thinks this way with the students, but we used to tell our students all the time, I don't care if you're 14 16, 17, you can make an investment in someone's life for Christ and make a huge difference. That's also true if you're 40, 50, 60, 70. It never stops. As long as we have breath in our lungs, we can live for him in his vineyard. This is his field. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 9? Pray the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into his harvest. We're the laborers. So we need to pray that God will send forth laborers and then be willing to go when he sends us. Whether it's work, school, community, or maybe you're called to Nigeria and God wants you to do a mission work there. Whatever it is, we go because we are his laborers. This is his vineyard and we're doing it for him that others might know. They don't have to stand idle waiting around for temporary pleasures. They can receive the fullness of eternal life. And so let's pray. We'll ask the Lord to be with us this week as we go into this world, making a difference for him. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that in this parable that we have understood correctly what's being talked about here, we pray, Holy Spirit, that if we are uh, not understanding this in the right way or we're not seeing the right picture of this text, I pray that you'd give us wisdom that we would change and conform to the image of Christ through the understanding of your word. But I pray, Lord, if we are understanding correctly, if we are seeing this for what it is, that we would rejoice, Lord, first and foremost, that eternal life is a guarantee. That in Christ, it's not a merit system. We work out of our salvation, not for it. And thank you, Lord, that we are all equal before the cross, that we cannot boast. Also, thank you, Lord, for putting us in this vineyard at this time. That this community, this area is, is ready to be harvested. And I pray, Lord, that we would go forth into the harvest, expecting and desiring you to do great things. For some here, Lord, their, their field, their vineyard is a school. For some, it's a workplace. It's a neighborhood. Maybe it's a dinner with family, friends, over co- and conversation begins. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that we would realize that we're always working for you. We're always active that others may come to know the eternal life that we've been given. So Father, again, thank you for all that you do. And again, go with us into this week. Help us to live for you in a way that honors you, glorifies you, and blesses those around us. Again, Father, we thank you for this morning, an opportunity to pray for our brothers and sisters all over the world, an opportunity to realize that the persecuted church is a church that is active and thriving and growing all over the world, that persecution from governments and groups will not hinder or stop your church that you are doing a global work and we get to be a small part of it, Lord, but thank you that we get to partner with so many others. And Lord, as we go through our week this week, maybe there's somebody here, Lord, that is not looking towards or or looking forward to tomorrow because they're going to be back in an environment where maybe they are being to some degree persecuted for their faith, maybe mocked or ridiculed or even in a simple thing, Lord, I know we feel like it's nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters are going through, but it's still real. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen the church, strengthen us as believers to go into tomorrow bold for the cause of Christ. Not fearful of man, but thankful for the opportunity to work for you. And Father, lastly, we pray and and lift up Tuesday. 
We know, Lord, that with Election Tuesday going on, Lord, there's a lot of decisions that are going to be made, and it could really change a lot of things. But, Father, as we are confident that you are on your throne Tuesday morning, you will be on your throne Wednesday morning, that nothing will rock you, nothing will shake you, and your will will be done. But, Lord, in that, we do ask that if it is your will, that the election would go in a way that would honor you. And, Father, specifically for Michigan, I know our nation needs much prayer in the bigger picture of things, but, Lord, specifically for Michigan, Lord, I ask that that these proposals, Lord, really specifically Proposal 3, Lord, that I believe would directly cost the lives of unborn children. Lord, I pray that it would not pass. I pray that it would be turned down. I pray that we as the body of Christ and as many Christians across this state would agree that a child's life is just as valuable in the womb as it is out of the womb. And so, Lord, I pray that your will would be done there. I pray that people will be alerted and aware of that and make a decision that would honor you. But, Lord, whatever happens, we're so thankful that we get to trust you and trust in your will and know that no matter what happens on the ballot, that you, again, are in control. So, Lord, help us to be just just active in what we're doing for you. And, again, that you would be glorified in all of this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.